0: Oh, and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will dig a little bit deeper into Old fa- Old Town Folks by Harry Beecher Stowe, which was published in 1869. And as I said last time, I think this is a kind of a not a very well-known book, but it, it should be well, more well-known. I think obviously Uncle Tom's Cabin has that place in American memory for a for good reason. But, you know, I never knew how interesting a writer Stowe was and what a window she is into the mid-19th century American kind of mindset on different issues, especially from that reformist evangelical uh, mindset. So it's, it's worth checking out. Now, I, in, a, in a way, the first part of this book got me thinking, are we like almost in a modernist approach to writing? Because we're just getting little vignettes of different slices of life in the town and maybe we're gonna get a whole story. That's just like snapshots of different people kind of I compared it to Pastures of Heaven by Steinbeck if you haven't read that that's another great book, but that's where there's like an overarching story of a town, but it's told from little short stories each sort of standalone uh, and each kind of having its own plot. But all together you kind of get a picture of a community. Um, this uh this book kind of moved away from that. I think the first eight chapters do kind of fit that description. But after, you know, the chapters 9 through 19, which we're going to look at today, do take it in a different way. And we start to kind of get into the plot. And, and we get a sense of what's happening here. The first part of the story is really from Horace Holyoke's point of view, our narrator, this young man living in this town. And so he's getting uh, information impressionistically. Um, about his, his past. Um, but when he has to tell the story of Harry and Tina, he has to do so in a more narrative way. And, and their story is prone to narrative. So basically chapters nine and 19, which is a big chunk of the book, obviously we're talking about almost a quarter of this text, uh, is dealing just with Harry and Tina's experiences. Now they're, uh, a comparable to Horace in in the sense that Horace is a, an orphan being raised by his grandmother, Harry and Tina are also orphans by this point in the story. Both their parents have died, and they're sent to be essentially apprenticed to uh, these you know these people in in a nearby town close to Old Town. Um, now the this is a fairly common thing. I, I am off and on working on a book about a guy named Warren Chase who was a Utopian socialist who was part of the Wisconsin Constitutional Convention, uh, kind of the the left wing of the of, of the Constitutional Convention, advocating for black civil rights and women's right to vote and bank you know lenient bankruptcy laws to protect homesteads and things like that. Uh, he was against capital punishment, so he was kind of a progressive figure. He later became involved in spiritualism and toured the nation as a spiritualist speaker. He wrote a book during the Civil War, really focusing on the need for land reform in America. This is an interesting guy. Um, he's not very well known, though, but he did write an autobiography. And one thing you learn in that autobiography is that he was orphaned. He, w- he was an orphan and forced to live with a cruel master, apprenticed to a master, indentured essentially through his childhood. That was a common way of dealing with orphans in those days and often I mean, maybe it's a cliche, but it happened to Warren Chase, and he was a real guy. You get sent, you, you, you get sent to someone who doesn't really want a child, just wants a laborer, and will just mit- treat, mistreat them. So, um, this is not an uncommon experience, it seems. And then running away from that and trying to resist it, which Warren Chase did, he was able to be reapprenticed with a more, like, a lawyer family, and, and he got a little bit better treatment and education there. That's, that, that's part of the American story, too. Right. Um Now, Harry and Tina go to very different people in a way. They're the same family. So uh, old crap, Caleb Smith. It, Harry goes to him. Now he has an older sister. Smith has an older sister named Miss Asphyxia Smith. And she takes Tina. Um, now they have very kind of different views. I think Harry just Harry's uh, master, uh, old Caleb Smith old crap Caleb Smith just wants a laborer just wants someone to work for him and it's kind of indifferent to any kind of didactic or progressive training at all he's not interested in education he's not interested in Harry's future just wants a laborer on the farm Miss Asphyxia wonderful name it's just such a uh, is there anyone who's ever been named Asphyxia is that a real name it's kind of like how uh uh what's her name um uh, Harriet Jacobs called uh, called her master, you know, Flint. It's like the use of names to connote character is, is pretty common here. And certainly this is an asphyxiating environment that that Tina is living in. Um, but this is a little bit different. This is, I don't want to say Mrs. Asphyxia is indifferent to Tina's upbringing. It's just her idea of an upbringing, Asphyxia's ideas of upbringing, is what she got, which is harsh discipline labor no enjoyment no fun no pleasure and that's what she passes on to to tina Um, and it ends up coming off as very cruel and it, it certainly is but you get the sense that she actually thinks that this is the best thing for for tina even though she's totally misguided so anyways let's jump into this chapter nine is called harry's first day's work and this is Uh, Kind of, uh, you know, here's an example where the hundred page at a time really lines up. Well, usually I I choose what I read Basically on page count and where the chapters line up, but sometimes it really you get a nice chunk Uh, And today is certainly one of those days because this story of Harry and Tina kind of has a beginning middle and end Um, and previously we were introduced to old crab Smith and Tina and the situation with the kids, but we, you know, it really starts in chapter nine where we see this. In fact, Harry Beecher Stowe tells us we're going to kind of enter in a new topic. Previously, we were talking about the town. Now we're going to talk about the labor, the philosophy of child rearing. In the same way, she had these these she'd wax philosophical in Uncle Tom's Cabin and and step out, break the break the third wall or whatever it's called, and and talk to the audience. We get that here too. Uh, Quote, the philosophy of modern society is showing to parents and educators how delicate and how varied is their tasks. But in the days we speak, nobody had thoughts of these shadings and variations. It is perhaps true that in that very primitive and simple state of society, there were fewer of those individual peculiarities, which are the result of the stimulated brains and nervous systems of the modern society. Be that as it may, the little parish of Needmore saw nothing of the fact that two orphan children had fallen into the hands of Crabsmith and his sister Miss Asphyxia which appeared to its moral sense to be at all unsuitable. To be sure, there was the shr- pressed shrug on the shoulder of the idea of the fair-hailed, pleasant-mannered boy being given up to old crab, quote. So there, there's like a community is aware that this is not an ideal situation, that these are kind of not, they're not parent material, really, but still, it's like, that's what's done. What else are you going to do with these orphan kids? And of course, we have the idea of modern child rearing, which I think America did a lot to cultivate. Uh, It comes from like Locke and the idea that people are born with a blank slate. Therefore, what they are is what we make them through education and through uh, the way we treat them. So one argument of this, of course, is we should treat our children well and teach them to play and teach them them things, not just force them to work. Because if you just force them to work and you're brutal to them, they're only going to learn work and brutality. They're not going to learn higher human emotions and experiences and behaviors they're not going to learn to be moral To you have to engage in moral education Um, now it's a little obviously didactic that way but it's of course better than just like assuming kids are sinners and well and and the best we can do is like control their vices that's kind of the old puritan idea about this um but anyway so we're definitely entering into a a section of the book that is going to be focused on this question of a proper child rearing and we're going to get very strong contrasts between asphyxia and and old crab and others who enter into the story all right now the the next chapter basically we, we have a description of the sibling relationship here too this is a very loving relationship harry is constantly praying for Tina, although Tina's not praying for Harry, Tina's much more depressed. I mean, that's kind of important. Even though Harry's kind of physically worse off in many ways than than Tina, uh, there's like physical abuse, at least it's implied. There's much harder labor. Tina is suffering emotional abuse, and she's coming out of it kind of worse off than Harry, who can maintain his faith, and Tina doesn't really she's't really able to do that. she comes out of this more doubting of of faith. She sees herself more as Hansel and Gretel, or she sees her her and Harry more as Hansel and Gretel than as you know someone like Uncle Tom who's going to suffer through bad experiences but maintain his faith so anyways, on to the next chapter chapter ten, we are introduced to Miss asphyxia's system that's the name of the chapter um, and we're also introduced to Solomon Peter who's just called Saul throughout. Um, Uh, the book. Uh, He's like the hired help of Mrs. Shrixia. And like we, there's very much a class consciousness, I think, in Stowe's approach. I talked a little bit about this before. When she writes dialect, she sometimes does this to, you know, to try to mimic and replicate African American dialects. That's common, but that's often indistinguishable from how she writes poor whites. We saw this in Uncle Tom's Cabin. We see this here too with with Saul. Um, she's not like hostile to them. In fact, the working poor in this book are some of the more honest people, right? And so some of the just objectively better people. It's the same with uh, uh, what's his name, Sam Lawson, right? The the village do nothing. They're they're actually pretty good people, pretty moral people, the diligent, hardworking, puritanical types like Asphyxia are are pretty bad actually so i think it's wonderful how Stowe is actually critiquing kind of the puritan work ethic here throughout this by looking at this question of how we raise children but souls in the story too he's kind of in the household with mrs fixia and we learn a lot about mrs fixia's upbringing and how she was denied any any pleasures um she has skills she's perfectly proficient in all these womanly arts and everything she has to do but basically her whole life has been labor and uh, you know maybe we've all had this grandmother who like has a parlor and everything in the parlor is perfect and you have like a a well structure with the dishes that never get used that just sit up there perfectly and you can't bump them you can't even go in the parlor because you might bump into things that kind of feeling that That kind of stuffy feeling you might get in some more uptight relative's house where everything has a place, everything's perfect, nothing can be disturbed is what we get here, where we're kind of play is suppressed, where everything, every moment of the day is kind of regimented in a certain way. I I had a grandmother who was sort of like that. Uh, She wasn't too bad to us, but you could tell like she's clenching her fists when she saw us playing around the house, you know. Um, So play is kind of excised from this life asphyxia just doesn't see it as valuable. Um, now Tina tries to play, and she actually will um, like kind of makes like a toy just out of like cloth and things. And Mrs. Xvixia sees it and says, "What do you got there?" And she's like, "I, I like it. it's pretty." And then Xvixia just takes it away, throws it literally into the fire. So it's she's she's almost incapable of of seeing pleasure. And Stowe tells us like. If Asphyxia had known that Tina actually liked that thing and wasn't just carrying her own like trash, she probably would have let her keep it. But it was she was incapable of even imagining that one could get pleasure in life. It, it's really really sad. Asphyxia is really really a kind of a sad, tragic, horrible figure. Caleb Smith, her brother, is works a little bit more just as a straight up villain, but. He's, you know, you'd much rather be with Caleb Smith, you get the sense, right? Because you're at least working outside and he doesn't really care that much. He's drunk a lot of the time. You might get beat more and the work's harder, but there's not like this psychological torment and this like lack of humanity we get from asphyxia. And it's so sad because we get a sense that this has just been passed on to her and she's passing on to Tina. It's, it's, it's much, much worse. Um, the only kind of education she gets uh, is uh, religious education, which is very puritanical and didactic. It's described here. This is page 1003 of the Library of America version. Remember, this volume has three volu- books in it. Um, she says, uh, or Stowe writes, Mrs. Fixie was particularly harsh and emphatic on the answer which described the omnipotence of the supreme being and her harsh voice croaking, if I tell a lie, he sees me. And if I speak an idle or wicked word, he hears me. Seemed to the child to have a ghastly triumph and to conform the idea that Mrs. Fixie's awful tyranny was certainly backed up with a being far more mighty and from whom there was no possible escape. Mrs. Fixie enforced this truth with coarse and homely eloquence and there was no getting away from God. Which is... Of course, she stops praying. Harry doesn't. Harry continues to be faithful in in his religious belief, but Tina just ends up being afraid of God, of her God, and, and terrified of it because that's asphyxia's God that gets passed on to her. Again, it's very, very sad uh, contrast. So she basically takes up this fantasy of Hansel and Gretel and that Harry and Tina will be like Hansel and Gretel and escape and live out in the woods, and they sort of do. It, it's kind of fascinating when we get to that part of the story, which won't be long. Um, next chapter is called The Crisis, and this is where the relationship between Tina and Mrs. Asphyxia finally break, and it's, obviously it's over a trifle, um, not anything important, just a little bit of a, a mess with some flowers. She was making a garland or something, something beautiful, something nice, and that can't have, doesn't have a place in Asphyxia's world, so, this leads to more scolding and, and 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 shouting at her, and Tina has sort of an emotional breakdown at this point. Previously, we've learned about her fascination with Hansel and Gretel. In fact, the child considered herself and Mrs. Facia as in a state of warfare, which suspends all moral rules. In the stories of little girls who were taken captive by goblins or giants or witches, she remembered many accounts of sagacious depictions which they had practiced on their captors. Her very blood tingled when she thought of the success of some of them, how Hansel and Gretel had heated an oven red hot and persuaded the old rich to get into it by some cock and bull story of what they would find there, of what she would find there, and how the minute she got in, they shut up the eye of the door and burnt her all up, quote. Now, in a way, this is really horrible because we have a young, a 10-year-old here thinking about murder, Drunk although it is through these fairy tale, fairy tale stories. Um, but also, it's like, a call for resistance, right? Uh, obviously, resistance seems justified in this way, and what is and, and Hansel and Gretel's, you know, it's not just killing the witch, that's what she's dreaming of here, but it's also an escape from a cruel stepmother, and that's gonna be the path they ultimately take. So we don't get the gruesome scene where she puts Miss Aficia in the oven or murders her, although that would be nice. You kind of want that at this point in the story. You're, you're hoping for it, but we're not gonna get it here. Um, Instead, we get an escape plot, which is begins to be described in Chapter 12, the lion's mouth shut. And here we, we hear about Harry's plans to escape um, from his master and to find Tina. Now, there's very little interaction between the two siblings, even though they're I mean, they're they're nearby each other. They're not really allowed to talk much. And old crab, I think, doesn't care as much. But Mr. Fixie doesn't want Tina talking to Harry much. But they, they find each other once in a while and talk and share plans for escape and harry shares it with her and tina becomes very excited thinking we're going to go on an adventure like hansel and gretel so she's kind of been driven to almost like these kind of delusional fantasies um in her hopes of escaping um but this chapter ends with a fascinating scene where we we see harry finally escape and um harry says like you'll never whip me again. That's the last thought he has. But then we get uh, old crab coming home. Quote, old crab came home that night thoroughly drunk, a thing that did not very often occur in his experience. He commonly took only just enough to keep himself in a hyena state of temper, but not enough to dull the edge of his cautious, grasping, money-saving faculties. But tonight he had an experience that had frightened him and driven him to a deeper excesses as a refuge from thought. End quote. So this... uh, um, so something happened to him that leads him to drink. Um, now, this type, what would we call this, like a functional alcoholic, someone who who drinks but has control, doesn't drink during the day, but, you know, you know doesn't drink so much he goes broke, he can still function in his life. He presents a facade of, of well-being when actually it's not. That's what I think we get here. But tonight he gets totally blotto. Quote When the boy upon whom he was meaning to wreck his diabolical passions so suddenly turned upon him in an electric fury of enkindled passion, there was a sort of jar or vibration of the nervous element in the man's nature that brought about a result not uncommon to men of his habits. And as he was looking as a, in a sort of stunned, stupid wonder at the boy where he stood braced against the manger, he afterwards declared that he saw suddenly in the dark space above it, hovering in the air, the exact figure and form of the dead woman whom they had buried in the ground only a few weeks before. Her eyes looked right at me, like live coals, he said, and she had her hand as if she struck me, and I grew all cold over as a stone. What do you suppose it was? said his auditor. How should I know, said old Crab. But there I was, and that very night the young um ran off. I wouldn't have tried to get him back I would have tried to get him back, not for my right hand, I tell you. Tell you what, I don't like dead folks. If dead folks let me alone, I'll leave them alone. That's Aaron and fair, ain't it? So basically seeing the, the ghost here, the ghost of this woman they had buried, um, convinces him not to chase after Harry. He takes it as a sign to let Harry go. Mrs. Asphyxia, on the other hand, can't get over Tina's betrayal, essentially. And again, I think this is a really interesting contrast between these two siblings, uh, not Harry and Tina in this case, but, but um, Old Crab and Asphyxia, who Asphyxia, can't imagine someone wouldn't want to, to live with her. And Old Crab is kind of just like, well, I guess that's the fates and I'm not going to try to anger this ghost because that's, that's a trouble. Um, so that's, that's that. Then we get the old bird's nest, uh, the empty bird's nest, which is referring to Tina's escape. Um, And she does escape. Sol then tries to talk Miss Asphyxia down from her anger, but is not uh, very successful in doing so. Now, even though this part of the story is moving into plot pretty quickly with that are on these two kids, these siblings, these two sets of siblings, really. We still get these nice asides about the Old Town folks. Uh, Harry Beecher Stowe doesn't forget that she's trying to tell us the story of the whole community. And we get that here. Um, so we have Sol, Solomon, who is the hired help. Um, now, as far as I know, Sol's racial background isn't given. We just, he's just described as hired man. Um, but listen to this. Um, the fire soon leaped and crackled and roared, being well-fed with the choice split hickory sticks of last year, of which Sol kept ample store. And very soon the big brass kettle was swung over with the big iron crane, and the sacrificial water began to simmer briskly, while Mrs. Fixia prepared breakfast, not only for herself and Sol, but for Primus King, a vigorous old negro, framed as a sort of high priest in all manner of butchering operations for miles around. Primus lived in a debatable land between Old Town and Needholm, Needmore, And so was at the call of all who need an extra hand in both parishes. The appearance of Primus at the gate of his butcher's frock, knife in hand, in fact, put an end in Mrs. Fixie's mind to all thoughts apart from the present eventual crisis. And she hastened to place upon the table the screaming, steaming sausages, which with her usual despatch, had been put down for their morning meal. A mighty pitcher of cider flanked the savory dish to which Primus rolled delightful eyes at the moment of sitting down. The time had not yet dawned in those simple New England days when the black skin of the African was held to disqualify him from his seat at the social board with, which, or with the men whom he joined in daily labor. The strength of his arm and the skill of his hand and the willingness of his mind of the workmen in those days was his passport to equal social rights. An old primus took rank in the butchering season as a sort of leader and commander. His word was law in all steps and stages of these operations which transformed the plethoric obese inhabitants of the sty into barrels of pink hued salt pork and savory hams and tenderloins and spare ribs, or immense messes or uh, of sausage meat. Concerning all these matters, Primus was an oracle, End quote. So this is pretty optimistic uh, view. It's like a pre-Jim Crow kind of view of, of race. I don't know. I'm sure this is drawn from life, but I get the sense, because of the dialect in part, but also passages like this, that soul, a white hired laborer, and a free black like Primus are interacting socially quite intensively. You know, they, they, we're told here they share labor. So we get an image of a more interactive uh, social environment between the races in passages like this. Uh, and I just mentioned it partially because it's another window into the diversity, cultural, racial diversity of this town. We've already seen full of Indians and we're going to see more about Indians shortly. The next chapter, chapter uh, 14, is called uh, The Day in Fairyland. And this is really focusing on Tina and Harry's escape, which again is compared, especially in Tina's mind, with Hansel and Gretel. Harry, not so much. Harry is still faithful about Jesus. In fact, they discuss religion pretty directly. And we learn how much Tina has kind of fallen away from her religious beliefs because of her experiences. and they, they wander in the woods. Now, eventually, they run into a squaw, an old Indian woman, who basically sort of takes them in and takes care of them. And again, the Hansel and Gretel metaphors are here. They're kind of turned on our head because this squaw is not going to mistreat Harry and, and Tina. It's, it's inverted. They're leaving the abusive relationship. Of course, Hansel and Gretel had abusive relationships on both ends, but... They're still, the father was good, right? So they, they're leaving the loving father and end up with the, the witch. Here, it's sort of inverted. And just as we saw, like, power and goodness in Primus and in Soul, we're going to see it in the squaw. So the marginalized members of, of Old Town become some of the, most, the moral center of this tale. And, and I think there's a real radical heart to this story because of that flipping that uh, Stowe does Maybe it's hinted at in the minister's wooing. It's certainly something that's at the heart of Uncle Tom's Cabin, but there it's like, uh, you know, it's all tied up in the abolitionist struggle and the hatred of Stowe for the planter South. Turning around that same narrative of, of, of you know, sh- showing the exploited bottom of society as being the most moral it shouldn't surprise us, I suppose except that she's talking about New England society and not the South, where that narrative is perhaps more easily discussed. Um, so um, next, we have the old manor house. So basically, they run into an abandoned house, which turns out to be essentially a, a haunted house. And they sort of move in here uh, to the house, and we get a long tour of, of the house as Harry and Tina kind of explore its different rooms and different facets. Um, At one point, we kind of get a hint of a ghost where there's a portrait that Tina says almost looks like a real woman. So you got the sense maybe it's like the eyes are moving as she moves around. A little bit creepy. But the important thing in this story... Now, they don't see it as a haunted house yet. It's the other people in Old Town that describe it that way. But we do got a fascinating section here just about English culture. Now, what's a house like this doing abandoned, first of all? It's like, obviously... There's something wrong with it, right? It's location, it's geography. In this case, it's deemed to be haunted. But um, these old houses of more of the English style in revolutionary America is something that is sort of taken up here by Stowe. Uh, Stowe's part of the American Renaissance, part of this struggle for uh, new American independent culture of England. So I want to read this passage. Quote, the histories of these old houses, if searched into, present many many romantic incidents in which truth may seem wilder than fiction. In the breaking of the ties between the mother country and America, many of these stately establishments were suddenly broken up, and the property, being subject to governmental claims yet undecided, lay a long time unoccupied, the real claimants being in England, and their possessions going through all the process of deterioration and decay, incident to property in the hands of agents at a distance from the real owners. The moss of legend and tradition grew upon these deserted houses. Life in New England in those days was not the thousand stimulants of the love of excitement which are to be found in the throng and rush of modern society, and there was a great deal more of storytelling and romancing in real life than exists now. And the simple villages by their firesides delighted to plunge into the fathomless abyss of incidents that came from the histories of grand unknown people across the water, whom had established this incidental connection with the neighborhood then there 's a little bit more here about the legends of all these houses, but essentially, what we have here is a house that 's apparently owned by an English person. Uh, now, I know like a lot of this property of loyalists was seized, right? That was a whole issue with or at least it was co- they, they were compensated for but i 'm sure there were a lot of properties that were sort of left in this dubious state not long after the American Revolution and you get the sense here almost it 's almost too ostentatious for. American New England sensibilities at the time. Uh, fine for English gentry, but not for uh, more modest Americans. But essentially it becomes essentially a haunted house. The ghost being the ghost of like English domination of the continent. That's has so been overturned. I don't know. Maybe that's reading too much into it. But next chapter um, is Sam Lawton's discovery. So Lawson, Sam Lawson, our town do nothing comes back into the story at this point and he discovers the children hiding out at the haunted house and he brings this knowledge to uh the grandmother and she ha- expresses a great concern over them so after we've we've had almost 100 pages of just bad parenting <laughs> presented with old Cale smith and asphyxia smith and now we're reminded of how good the grandmother is in raising Horace and Horace also into the story here as some, someone sort of listening in and participating in the saving of these kids uh, in chapter 17 a visit to the haunted house Horace takes part in this expedition uh, and also much of this like the other Horace chapters we've seen is just him sort of eavesdropping on the conversations of others And we get a window into the beliefs and the supernatural beliefs of the people of this community towards this house. And that's kind of a fascinating little uh, section, but basically it just gets us to save the kids and brings us to the climax of this part of the story. Again, this 100 pages really arc together well, I think. It does kind of tell the contained story. And that is uh, Tina and Harry's, well, Tina's event adoption, Harry, I think also, the chapter is called uh, Tina's Adoption, by a woman named Miss uh, Metable. So who, she's another old maid, so that's forced to have us contrast with asphyxia. Asphyxia was described as an old maid several times, which she is. She's an older, unmarried woman. But we have another old maid here who is someone who missed out on the chance of having children but is parent material and is praised for her for her good nature. And this is told very systematically by Stowe through a letter she writes to her brother showing how excited she is to finally have, be able to raise a kid and her plans for properly raising a kid. And the brother writes back. So if that's not enough, the brother has to write back confirming from the other side that, yes, this is a good woman. So. Uh, Stowe takes a lot of effort to lay the groundwork here to present this new character, Miss um, Metable. I think there must be something with, I should look up like the actual meaning there because I think there's something else with the language there. But she's presented as a better, much better alternative for our young, um, our young children. So the trauma of the Smiths apparently is over but we'll see if that uh, you know, we know that Mrs. Fixia is still anxious and worried about this and wants to have Tina back. Old Caleb, old crab, Caleb Smith doesn't seem to care nearly as much. Yeah, I guess I guess Harry go. They're still split up because Harry goes to live with the deacon. Um, but and and and. And Tina to this Miss Medible Rositer, What a name. Um, now, she's you know she's suffered a lot in life and she's missed a lot of opportunities for her own family and 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 happiness but now's her chance to to be a mother and her good behavior her good her moral core is going to be paid off we think we think in in this gift of a a child to us um so we have sort of i think all like our pieces are in place we still don't know where the story is going to go because This is sort of one big aside, just to introduce us to Horace's childhood friends, Harry and Tina, who we know from the introduction of the story are going to like, they're going to grow up together and and go their own ways. But we don't quite know where the drama is going to come into the story. It's probably not going to be Miss Aficia chasing them down for the whole novel, like in a, like a, what's the William Godwin book? Um, Caleb Williams or whatever where it's basically a a guy being chased irrationally by by a master for for the whole book it doesn't seem we're gonna get that Um, so what how's it gonna go we don't quite know but we're, we're getting to the halfway point of the book so hopefully by the next episode this will be clear where we're gonna where the stories are gonna take us but I have to say this book is super super rich the stuff just in this section with the racial dynamics, the world building of this town, the haunted house, the legacy of the American Revolution, and these abandoned English manners floating around, the the, the story of, of what happens to orphans in New England, all these things are really well developed here. And yeah, I think this, this book deserves an audience. Um, I, I mean, it, I'm sure it has some, but. It's, it's got a LibriVox recording, so it's not totally unknown. But I have to say it's a book I never heard of. I even had this book on my shelf for a long time, and I, I just knew, oh, there Uncle Tom's Cabin would be. I didn't know these other two books were there, and I'm really glad I'm discovering them. So I urge you to check it out if you, if you have the time to read a 500-page book. Um, in the next episode, I will look at at least chapters 20 through 26. That's 100 pages or so, but I might, I might add chapter 27 just to balance things out later on in the reading. But that's what will come up next. Hopefully, we'll know where the story's going by then. Um, anyways, uh, great book. Hope you read it. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll, I'll see you next time.